Hello everyone and welcome to Note Up number 83. Today we've got some very special guests and we're going to be talking about LibUV, something that's at the, the very heart of Node. And there's a lot there that's quite interesting that uh, if you don't know about, I'm sure you'll be in for a great show today to see all the things that this great little library can do. Today's show is sponsored by Lyft Security, and Yet, and Codeship, and you'll be hearing a bit more about them later. Our guests today are, we have Bert Belder. Do you want to introduce yourself, Bert? Hey, I'm Bert. Yes, of course. I'm just an, an ordinary guy. I've been working on Node.js for a long time, and since we're talking about LibUV, that would be, I find it interesting because I'm one of the creators of LibUV. I was there from the beginning. Other than that, I'm a Strongloop founder. Strongloop is a company that built node-related products. That's it for now. And I believe Bert is also eating bacon at the same time. Next we have Saul. Saul, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, thanks. Well, interestingly, I am not related to Node in any shape or form. I'm actually a Python programmer by day, and I started to play with LibUV back when it wasn't yet called that way in the night, and these days I'm kind of a core janitor of that project, and I created Python bindings for it. And Tim Caswell, long-time Node personality, do you want to tell us about yourself, Tim? Sure. I've been working with Node since the very, very beginning, early 2009. I've made things some of the listeners may have heard of, how to Node, NVM, JS Git recently. And when, when LibUV came out, I decided to start writing bindings to it for every scripting engine I could get a hold of. And the most popular of those is Love It, which is a LuaJet bindings. And we'll be talking about my other projects later on. Great. Trevor Norris, introduce yourself. Hey, I'm Trevor Norris. I am a Node.js and IOJS maintainer. And also, I created LibNub, still kind of an alpha stage, but it's I'm attempting to write a wrapper over LibUV to help it be more thread safe and just kind of see where that goes. And I'm Rod Vag with NodeSource, also involved in the IOJS project as well. And I'm going to tell you about Lyft Security, our first sponsor. So Lyft Security. RequireSafe is Lyft Security's latest offering to the Node security world. If you haven't heard, Lyft Security created the Node security project to audit all the modules on NPM. The Node community has since grown exponentially where the registry contains roughly 124,000 modules today. The problem RequireSafe aims to solve is, whose code are you running in production? To clarify just that, RequireSafe offers dedicated resources looking after their third-party code for subscribers, early warning and recommendations for remediation when an issue is identified, documentation for developers on common gotchas when using certain modules, integration with your deployment and CI tools. As sensitive vulnerabilities become resolved and public, this info will be made available to the community at large. RequireSafe is currently available in beta. To check it out, visit requiresafe.com. If you're interested in hearing more about Lyft's auditing services or want to bring a security-first mindset to your team's development process, contact the Lyft Security team at liftsecurity.io or at liftsecurity on Twitter. Also look for team Lyft members Adam Baldwin and David Diaz at SINFO in Portugal later this month, and this month being February. So let's uh, move on to our first section where we're going to actually introduce what LibUV is about and look at a brief history of, of LibUV. I'm wondering, Saul, if you could give us an introduction to what LibUV is and the kinds of thing it, things it does in just a couple of sentences. Sure. So in a nutshell, LibUV is a cross-platform asynchronous I.O. library. Basically, is an abstraction point for different Unix and Windows I.O. primitives like primitive is required for file I.O. and network I.O. primarily, though it has helpers for some other things as well related to them. It came to be, Bert can correct me here if I'm wrong, between Node 04 and Node 06. So when it was something Node 05, uh, there was this interest to, to have like Windows be a first-class citizen in Node, so have a proper support for all the I.O. primitives. And this is kind of different to what Unix does. So instead of trying to bolt it into Node, the idea was to abstract it out, create a library with it, and then put Node on top. Before that, Node used to be on top of LibEV. And then LibEV was created to bring these efforts of platform consistency 
As a fun fact, Live UV is only the third name this library got. It was Live OL, Live OIO, and then Live UV. But Live EV was in Node from, from, I think, the beginning. What were some of the deficiencies of Live EV that, that bought Live UV? As I said, indeed, it was mostly about Windows support, at least initially. You have to imagine Node does asynchronous I.O., right? And the way to do that on, on Unix systems is, like, is very different than it is on Windows. But, but the interesting thing is when I started porting Node to Windows, I quickly discovered that actually the sort of the Windows model was much closer to what Node was already doing than what Unix did, does, right? And so what Lib, LibEV abstracts. What we decided to do is like find sort of a middle ground that, that is close to Node, but that works great on all platforms. The other thing is, of course, we didn't initially really want to write our own library for this. We just started adding like other asynchronous ways of doing asynchronous I.O. to Node itself, but that quickly became just unwieldy and you know, it, the code would end up f full of like if-def statements. If, you, if you're familiar with C or C++ programming, you know what I mean. Unreadable and unmaintainable. So by like April 2011, if, if I'm correct, we decided, well, let's put all the difficult parts like in, in its own library and basically write you know, Node in C. So uh, the Node project would only have to care for linking these abstractions to JavaScript. And that, that in theory, that would have, would have to be all. Of course, you know, there were other, other deficiencies in LibEV. So for example, in Node 04, child processes were not, didn't really work that well. There were issues with certain types of sockets and pipes. And having our own library really made it possible for us to, to optimize one library for Node's particular use cases. I think that is mostly the reason why we started to do it. The core of Node is written in C++, but LibUV is, is pure C. Can you talk to why that's the way it is? Well, like operating systems have a C interface, right? So POSIX is a, is a C API. Windows has a C API. At least the low-level APIs are in C. So it didn't make much sense to us to do it on C++. And also there's, there's just a part of, you know, taste maybe to it, especially at the time me and Ryan and, and soon after that, Ben Nordhaus, when we started working on LibUV, we didn't really like C++. I think that the preference has changed a little bit since then, but at that time we were like, no, 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 no complications. Keep it really simple and, you know, do what all the operating systems do. When I look at the code bases of, of Node versus LibUV, I have to say the LibUV code is much cleaner and nicer to look at. I think that was a great choice just purely on aesthetics. I agree with you, but there's one thing where I think it may, may have been a mistake, which is LibUV is, is essentially object-oriented. So you have classes and you know, subclasses in there, and C doesn't really have, have a lot of support for that. So instead, what, what the user ends up having to do is cast, typecast between different types. And that's not, that's not really the way you should do it. I mean, it works. But you lose, for example, a lot of type safety that the language has, has to offer. Um, that's something that we don't really like anymore. Okay, so there's a little bit of regret there. Can someone talk about the name? Because there's a lot of confusion about the name, you know, if it stands for anything or where it came from. Does anyone have anything to add about the name? The name is the secret. <laughs> we don't talk about the name. <laughs> no, really, as far as I know, the initial reason why LiveUV was chosen as a name was because it was two letters. So in order to name a space things, you want names to be shorter. So you put UV underscore whatever. And that gives you a bit of a namespace and, and is short. Maybe it's a bit similar to EV, but it didn't quite have a defined meaning. However, at some point in time, Fedorin, Dudney and I decided to put a bounty for a logo. And then this idea of unicorn velociraptor <laughs> came about. And the logo turned out so cool that now it has to be that name. I think there's t-shirts you can buy with that on it. Isn't, isn't that right? Yeah, we, we made a couple of campaigns on, on Teespring. I'm not sure if there is one open still, but... Well, maybe you yeah. should start one after this show, because we'll probably get a well, lot of interest. Maybe we should do that. Every now and then, people ask for it on Twitter. Something That's why we created the second round. So I guess we can do, do it again in the future. It is a cool it's, really, it's really interesting, though. Like I, I thought this was just... I don't know, a geeky prop for the few people that work on it. But actually, I, I was at Node Summit 
uh, this earlier this week, and that's kind of a you know and business oriented conference. But I saw a couple of people wearing a LibUV T-shirt there, so I guess you know it's it's kind of popular nowadays. I got um, to stop at Fosdem, <laughs> like, hey, where did you get it? I was like, well. <laughs> so yeah, it was great. Yeah. Now, LibUV eventually reached 1.0. It took a while. I think it was only just late last year that it was 1.0. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about why it took that long to get to 1.0? And is there any significance in 1.0? Saul, do you want to tell us about that, about that? So, well, there is a certain significance. So, in order to understand how we reached 1.0, maybe is we need to backtrack a bit. So LiveUV was super tight to Node in the sense that it never had the standalone releases or anything until 0.10.2. Before that, it was always pulled into Node for the release and, and that was it. Then, well, people started to use it for other things. So it started to gain, let's say, importance outside of Node. And, and it turned out that it would, we made it like a standalone. So then LiveUV had releases, which were synchronized with Node, but they were LiveUV releases. Now, eventually, there were also other people or projects or interests driving LiveUV, not only into Node's directions, but into whatever. For example, myself, I wanted to use it for something. I felt, oh, maybe we can use this API, this other API. So I dis usually discussed it with Bert and Ben, and uh, we ended up uh, implementing something. And then at some point when Node 12 got installed somewhere in the path, LiveUB was installed as well because we had done this usually follow uh, Node's uh, release schedule. So we were, I remember this day we were, it was Masiak, Node user and developer and Bert and, and me. And Bert suddenly said, why don't we just call it 1.0 and move on with our lives? It sounded like a great idea. <laughs> so there were a few things on the table left to be done. Uh, we finished them. For example, one of them was API documentation, so that it would look like a proper project. And once that was done, we called it 1.0. And the significance of, of this point is that we promised two things. Backwards compatible APIs throughout the 1.0, well, 1.x, let's say, release, plus ABI stability. The idea is that whatever you build with 1.x today, you can compile with 1.x later as well. No need to change anything. And we have added new APIs, but we haven't like modified any of the APIs there in a backwards incompatible manner. So that was the promise sort of of what 1.0 meant. And well, we took it out of the door and now it's 1.4.0 now. Uh, we so followed does that mean it's following Simver? Sorry. Yes. Uh, yes. Sorry. Actually, in the beginning we were going to do O12 because that's what Node was going to be, but because that wasn't happening, and also Bert suggested, hey, how about we go 1.0 all the way? Because in the end, if if you look at it, since its very inception until today, the design of LiveUV hasn't actually changed that much. So yes, the guts were replaced. So it began with LibEV at the core and then that one got gutted and now we have our own things on top of EPOL and whatnot. But the model, the whole callback-based API, the APIs look very much like the first inception. So it made sense that, that we wrap it up, call it 1.0, and then everything new or a twist on top of this that can be a 2.0 thing. Great. Now, what sort of platforms does LibUV support? Because I believe the platform support is much wider than, than what Node is targeting. So you're using it across Python bindings. Is it just wide open or are there specific platforms you're targeting? Platforms, you mean like Unix windows or sort yeah, of? Yeah, yeah, yeah which, well, which Unixes, all that sort of stuff. Pretty much is Linux, then macOS. BSD is the most supported version. I believe it's FreeBSD, even though we do have NetBSD and OpenBSD support as well. But let's say that we fix bugs on a report basis. So it's not one of the top tiers, let's say. Windows is a first-class citizen, which I think it also tells LiveUV apart from other similar projects. And also we do support MinGW and, well, actually the 
two incarnations of MinGW, MinGW32 and MinGW64. Well, I thought that nobody used those a lot, but every time we accidentally break it, someone comes and fixes it, <laughs> which is great. Yeah, that's, that's correct. I, I would like to add, you know, we also now support AIX, and I think oh, um, uh, that was added because people were adding node support, you know, for we're creating node support for AIX. And in general, I mean, it, the, the Unix part of, of LibUV is, is fairly modular. So by implementing a couple of functions, you could add other platforms as well. It's just that nobody really seems to have any desire to do that. You can run it on mobile platforms. I think it works on iOS. Of course, you have to jailbreak your device for that. For it, it works on Android. So in general, like we can make it more or less work everywhere. And maybe not on DOS though. <laughs> that would be fun. Oh, I um, forgot. Actually, SanOS or SmartOS is Solaris. That thing is also supported um, because well, Joyen has an, an interest in that. So. That's also a supported platform. And I'm not sure how Ben's Plan 9 port is doing. Let's move on. I might talk about our next sponsor, which is Anyet. The Anyet guys and the List Security guys are, are great buddies. So Anyet is one of the oldest sponsors of Noda. Anyet is celebrating seven years in business this, this month. That's super old. Anyet has been helping enterprise companies to ship Node in production since 2010. That's like 85,000 years ago in internet dog years. But these folks aren't paleolithic programmers. They're also among the earliest adopters of Happy, with members of their team who are Happy core committers, which means that they're Aaron Hammer endorsed and Aaron Hammer approved. And yet, has a very special message for everyone. Node doesn't have the same problems as the deaf platforms you're used to. It has entirely new problems. There are just so many opinions on best approach. Ask a dozen Node devs the right way to do something and you'll get 15 answers. There's no one-size-fits-all solution with Node because the problems we aim to solve are subtle and varied. We want flexibility. And yet believes that rather than subscribing to an opinionated set of best practices, teams need to find some good Node practices and understand where and how to apply them. The gap in your understanding then is where and how to apply the very good practices. This is an area where And Yet loves to help. And Yet provides Node and JavaScript consulting, specializing in the three A's, auth, APIs and architecture. And another A that they that's on the list is that they also created ampersand.ampersand.js, a modular node style approach to front-end JS. Reach out to andyet.com and be sure to follow them on the Twitter at andyet. Let's move on to part two of the show, which we're gonna delve into what LibUV does inside, you know, what are the things that it exposes and what are the challenges in making that possible. Node programmers used to talk about async programming, but what is the difference between the async I.O. model and classic programming? And I wonder, Tim, maybe you could uh, lead us in this to talk about you know, the differences between the LibUV approach and classic programming. Okay, so you mean like LibUV versus blocking I.O.? Yeah, so LibUV is a choice that, you know, you've, you've got PyUV, you've got Loveit, you've got all these other bindings for these different languages that are distinct from the, the, the standard programming approach, approaches right. in those languages. So you want to try and outline what that is about. As most Node developers should know, the, the big difference about Node and LibUV is the non-blocking I.O. The way I always explain this at conferences is when you go to the doctor and you're filling out the forms, you don't stand there in the line filling out your form. You go sit down so the next person can fill out a form and all the weight is in parallel. And I believe Ryan chose this model back when he made Node because he'd done a lot of Nginx programming. And that's one of the features that makes Nginx such a fast server is the non-blocking I.O. And so... LibUV also follows this pattern. So you can't normally say, open this TCP connection and block my entire process until it's done. You have to give it a C pointer callback and it calls you back when it happens. Basically the same as Node, you're just using C function pointers instead of JavaScript callbacks. The socket programming in particular is different. Now I, I come from a Java background. You know, in classic Java style, you you deal with sockets with threads because they're blocking. So you receive a connection from a client. You start up a thread to deal with that connection, whether it's a real thread or a green thread, and you block and wait for communication from that socket. Trevor, do you want to jump in on here because we haven't heard, haven't heard much from you, but tell us a bit about the network model that LibUV enables. How, how does that work and how is it different from the typical blocking thread model? Well, in my very layman's terms, I think I'll just say that it does its best to push everything as far down the stack as possible. 
it doesn't block and wait. It tells the kernel to let it know when something's available and ready to be done. It doesn't need to spin up a thread for every operation. There is one weird exception with OSX, with file system events. But other than that, libv doesn't have to block for anything that I know of and allows the kernel to handle it. If you think about blocking I.O., what happens is you know, every time you try to do something, you know, the kernel, the operating system kernel will sort of pause your process until it's done. So, you know, you say, write this like buffer to a file, then the operating system is going to do that for you. And then, you know, it pushes that down to the actual hardware. And as the hardware is doing that work, the operating system will just pause the thread that, that requested that write until the disk says, yes, it's done. Or I mean, usually it may end up in a cache in this particular case. But that's the general idea. Now, if you want to do asynchronous I.O., that means you start a whole bunch of different operations. And then at some point, you want to wait for any of them to complete. That is, that is fundamentally the thing that LibV does. So imagine, you know, I'm going to make uh, 10 outbound connections. I'm not going to wait for everyone to complete. Instead, I'm going to start 10 attempts to make outbound connections. And then I have a special magic function that will wait for any of these to complete. And then I can do some processing and then I go, you know, and then you can imagine there's like nine ongoing con connection attempts left and you go back to that same function and wait for the next one to complete. That is fundamentally what LibUV does. This is different on each operating system, isn't it? The, the, the primitives are very different. The model is very different. So if, if you think about Unix, typically what you do is you, you, like, if you imagine every file or every socket to have a, a number, you know, it's called a file descriptor. In Unix, uh, what you do is you, you throw all these file descriptors in a big bucket. And then as, as soon as there's, for, there's data available, for example, that you might read, or as soon as there's like space available where, you can, where the, the operating system can temporarily store some data that's outbound, one of these file descriptors will drop out of the bucket and then you can do whatever you want. On Windows, it works very differently. It's more like Node. So you actually start an operation or you, you say a start a write and you tell Windows after it's done, send a message to a particular port and a port in, is, is called a completion port. So you can do that a couple of times. If you want to wait for any of them to complete, you just ask the port, hey, uh, give me the next message. And, you know, and it might it might take a while before there is a message. But then when when there is one, it will it will tell you this write was done by 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 means of sending you a, uh, this message. That's a very different model. And, and if you think about it, the Unix model is, is really old and it, it, it works really well. And, and like we all know, it's, it's pretty fast, but it has its limitations. Like as I described, it, it works for sockets in particular because there's basically two possible situations. There's data available for you to read or there's a room in the kernel buffers so you can put some data in there that the kernel can then write in the background. You don't have to handle it like in Node. When you open up a NetSocket in the background, when it binds to the port, you have to tell the operating system how many connections to leave hanging in the kernel before it will refuse more connections. Now, the default in Node is 5.11 because of some rounding stuff that goes to 5.12. But basically, that means if you're handling a connection and 512 connections are being pooled by the kernel waiting to be received by node, then any other incoming connections will be refused. Now, when you use libv directly, you know that because you have to explicitly pass that parameter. But in node, that can that's completely implicit. It's, there's a default. Let's talk about the file system I.O. because I think most operating systems have, do have an async file system operation API, but in libv at least, and in node, we don't use the async operations, we use um, uh, thread pool operations. Does someone want to talk to, to why we do it differently for file system operations? Yeah, there's an interesting article I keep linking people to. Maybe we can put it in the show notes or something. It's an article by the guys at BitTorrent who tried to use the different asynchronous I.O. primitives for files, but unfortunately none of them work properly in all possible cases. Understand that I forgot on what operating system you need to open the files in direct mode, so bypassing all the disk cache. And then on top of that, if I don't know what conditions are met, your operation will still block, even if you requested it to be async. 
So there are so many exceptions that in the end, if you take the lowest possible, lowest common denominator is, well, put it in a thread pool and call it a day. Because you can actually assume to block on a thread pool and, well, we have a built-in communication mechanism by which the operation runs in the thread pool, but then returns the result back to the loop thread. So you effectively did not block your, your event loop. You can still continue to do stuff. And this has been done like this, I believe, since day one. So in the beginning, EIO was used as the thread pool on Unix, and Windows used one of the Windows built-in thread pools. Later on, Unix gained a homegrown thread pool. And a bit later on, we unified the Unix and Windows implementations so that they would have a consistent behavior. So right now, they effectively use the same thread pool implementation, which is not great, but at least you have a defined behavior. You know what to expect, and there are no surprises. I believe we will talk a bit about the future in a few minutes, and we do have some plans to improve the thread pool. And let me add to that that many people often ask me, like, why are you not using native Windows asynchronous I.O.? Or people ask us, like, why don't you use AIO, which is built in to Linux, I believe. The complication here, as Saul said, it's, it's kind of unpredictable well, whether if you try to do something asynchronous with the file system, it, whether it will actually be asynchronous. Sometimes Windows will just decide, hey, let's block. And then after blocking, we'll send you a message anyway. So you don't really get the guaranteed asynchronous behavior that Node is really relying on. Now, now there are ways around that. And the ways around that usually, and that, that, that we can do that on many platforms, by the way, that usually involves disabling the cache. And of course, there may be use cases where that's really desirable, but in, in general, you know, imagine you know, you're writing a node app and you're serving the same file over and over again. You really don't want to disable the cache. Another issue here is that if you do disable the cache, you, you are restricted in like the size of the blocks you can read and the offset. So in, in LibUV, typically it doesn't matter. You can say, give me 50 bytes starting at byte 31. If you disable the cache, you can only read Page, page sized chunks and at particular offsets, I believe multiples of 512. Uh, and so doing all this would, would in theory be possible, but it just, we didn't think it was worth the trade-off. So instead we, we use a threat pool. Real quick to the file system thing. I don't believe this has been fixed or I don't even know if it can be fixed, but on OSX, when you open a file descriptor to a file, it actually has to lock one of the threads in the thread pool there's a possibility of corruption in the data stream, correct? I think you mean like writes are serialized. We use like a global lock for for some operations in Mac. Is that what you mean? Well, that, but no, there's also code that like it'll hand the file descriptor to the thread. And then if I recall, it actually just locks the thread to that file descriptor. So like you can't use that thread as long as that file descriptor is open. That's only on OSX and only for file descriptors that point to a file on the file system. I, I don't think this is the case, actually. It's more like what sometimes happens or what might happen, for example, if you use Node, is there's two thread pool threads writing to the same file at the same time. And of course, they're not writing to the same section in the file. Like oh, That would make no sense, but the two writes may be, for example, adjacent. But strangely enough, and we don't really know why this happened, but it, it certainly happens if you do that files become corrupted. So, And that's actually ki kind of painful because now basically we are moving stuff to a thread pool because we want to make things more efficient, but then in a thread pool we're actually all se serializing uh, all the operations again. That's not so great, but it's not, it's not the case that we have to lock a thread for the entire as long life as of the, the file is open. <laughs> no, okay. that, that, would also, that would also not work out because, you know, usually the thread pool has four threads. It, that means if mm -hmm. you open four files, it would all be wedged, right? Luckily, that's not the case. I just remember talking of a friend that works at Apple, and I asked him about that because he works near the kernel code. And he said, that's an old issue. They know about it. It's a won't fix. If that does want to be fixed, uh, you'll have to move to libdispatch, unfortunately. Anyway. Interesting. Is there? I, I don't know much about libdispatch. Do you have it's, any more information about that? Could we use it's it? It's basically their libuv. So the way that I, one of the ways I think about libuv is sort of like, it's like jQuery for the operating system in many ways that 
it's I, it's a set a set of abstractions around many operating system primitives, particularly focused on asynchronous I/O. Is that an accurate way to to portray it? I don't know if I call it jQuery, but the main reason that I I use it in so many projects is I can just use a known set of APIs with known behavior, and it doesn't matter if I'm on Windows or Mac or Linux. And for the projects I work on, that's that's a big deal. And so I might not even need async I/O for my project, but just because I want that uniform interface, I'm going to use libuv anyway. And it makes it so easy to trace, like trying to track down all like the file system operation system calls for all different systems that you might be build, building on is a pain. Having that unified interface makes it much easier to trace and debug. Yeah, and it's in the end, like Trevor said before, you, you push the burden a bit down the stack. So LiveUV is riddled with if devs and all the platform difference idiosyncrasies, and then you don't need to do that. Somebody else did it, so it's put in there. So maybe maybe you could say the jQuery in the sense that it creates this thin abstraction layer on top of the different vendors, <laughs> quote unquote. So uh, they all seem to work the same. Yeah, if you look through the code, like you're presented with a very clean interface to LibUV. The the operations are all very predictable in their names. They're all it's all very stable. And you go digging into the code and you look at the differences between Windows and, and Unix and even even Linux and other Unixes and it just gets really messy in the, the implementation details. And that's the nice thing about what LibUV does for a lot of the, the projects that use it, is it's just a stable interface to the messy operating system details. Yeah. Also I think that they're like, for example, one of the differences between LibUV and LibEV is that LibUV is a bit higher level in that LibEV can only give you primitives for knowing if a file descriptor is ready to be written to or ready to be read from. But LibUV has, well, we have these handles, so you can easily create a TCP connection. You don't need to go and create the socket yourself, put it in non-blocking mode, and then hand it over to the library, and then do that yourself. You create the UV TCPT, and then you can UV connect and do all those things. So in that sense, it, it provides you like a little bit of a higher level abstraction, I would say. Because even in that very small thing, creating a socket and putting it in non-blocking mode is different per platform. And we can do it very fast on some platforms and with only one syscall and on others we need more. And LiveUV tries to do the best on each. So. Like every project, LibUV is building up a set of, of things that everyone wants to change and in a breaking way because you know we know how to do things better now. And so there is this vague plan for LibUV 2.0, which I assume will contain breaking changes. What are the big plans that are on the, on the cards for LibUV 2.0? Saul, do you want to introduce us to this? The big plan, in a way, is to a little bit turn the loop actually inside out, in a way. So right now, this is a bit abstract, but I'll try to simplify. Right now, the LibUV event loop works kind of in a push fashion. So the loop is doing its work and it calls out to you. It calls to it the callbacks you gave when it has something to do. For example, when the socket is readable, suddenly you get the callback that you have data to read or a write was performed. Hey, this write was performed. Now, this uh, has worked very well. But it has certain disadvantages. Some people, for example, want to have a little bit more fine-grained control over when they allocate memory or when they don't allocate memory or when the loop is running, more importantly. So what we plan to do is to switch to a pool-based mode. The idea is that you basically tell the loop, hey, do your work, and all the operations that need to happen, they will be queued. So we will have like a queue of all the operations that, that have been performed. And then when you work on that queue is when everything, you get all the callbacks called in your code and all your things happen. One, for example, as how this would surface on the API level, right now, write and read are kind of asymmetric operations. So you call write and then you get called back when uh, write is a request. So you say, hey, I want to write this data that request will be fulfilled a bit later and you will get a callback when your write is complete. Reads work a bit different. So you like to start the process and wait and then you will get called, hey, there's data, hey, there's data, hey, there's data. The idea is to do like with writes. So request the data, hey, I want to read now. So just let me know when there is the data. But 
I, as the user, started this process. So this change kind of is changes a lot of things inside LiveUV because because of introducing this new way of running the loop, some handles become irrelevant. Some others need to become something else. For example, right now we have a timer handle, but instead of being a handle, it will probably become a request. So one shot, hey, call me back after this time has passed. And basically turning this loop into everything is uh, handles are these objects that serve a purpose. And then when you want to perform an operation, you use a request. So everything will be a request. This is sort of the idea which ends up in this pool-based event loop. And uh, since we have been talking about threads, one not yet finalized plan is to take the thread pool and turn it into something like a handle. So some problem that people are facing these days, for example, I believe Node Serial project uses the file system APIs to talk to serial devices and our current thread pool is for threads. So, and you cannot really change it easily. Now, if instead of having an internal thread pool, we will have a handle that you create, hey, I want a thread pool with a hundred threads. And then you decide, hey, I want to run this file operation on that thread pool. Projects could manage their own small thread pools or not. Node could, could use its own thread pool for DNS operations, a different thread pool for file operations, and so on. On top of that, this thread pool in Node could use V8's micro task something Q, I believe, which has some benefits as well. So that is sort of the direction that where we're going a bit. We invented kind of a process inspired by what Python has. Python has this thing called PEPS, Python Enhancement Proposals. So we created LEPS, LiveUV Enhancement Proposals. We'll put the link on the, on the show's details. And basically there's where something which is big enough and warrants discussion so that we keep track of, of why we did things would warrant writing a LEP and then we can discuss it, implement it, land it, and so on. To go back a little bit to the, to the idea of removing handles and, and the, the lack of symmetry between, between reading and writing, you can kind of think the LibUV interface, if, if you're a Node user, you can think of the LibUV interface as you know, a mixture between promises and event emitters. And, and what we've decided is that it would be better to move to a, like a single model where you only have promises, for example. And that can, that can help because there's... Uh, it simplifies it, a lot. It simplifies a lot and it makes something else possible. I think Tim wants to talk about it, but basically yes. we want to remove callbacks. <laughs> Right. So when I first saw the uh, pool-based system, I misunderstood what was meant. And a while back while I was optimizing Levit, I used the LuaJIT engine, which has a really fast FFI baked into the JIT. So unlike most languages, FFI is actually fast in LuaJIT. But C callbacks are actually really, really slow through this interface. And I talked to Mike Paul, the creator of LuaJIT, and he says, if LibUV instead had a poll-style interface, where you would make a function call, say, hey, get next event, and then it returned some sort of struct that had the event, then I could interface LibUV entirely through the FFI, and his JIT engine would be able to know a lot more about the system. It'd be able to make a lot more optimizations and assumptions. And so once everything is turned into a request, which is like a promise, I think the next step would be to make an optional interface where there's no callbacks at all. You just you say uv.setTimer, and you don't give it a callback. You just give it some sort of data and then later when you pull the event from the pool, it gives you back that data. I know there's some technical issues with that, but I'm still going to be pushing towards that interface eventually because it would be extremely useful to me and I think it'd be, I think it'd be neat. I mean, it does have its issues because you then have to do your own callback dispatch at the scripting language level, but I'd rather do it there than in C anyway. So I am, I am one of the supporters of the, this idea. I think the, the biggest practical hurdle that, that is there right now is that it just requires a lot of changes inside LibUV. So, so you have to imagine that, that LibUV has to do its own internal bookkeeping. And, and right now what it can do is that it can you know, call the user's callback, for example, after reading some data, and then after that do something else. But that doesn't work if, if LibUV doesn't make callbacks, but it only dispatches a message. It doesn't know when to do its own bookkeeping. 
uh, that bookkeeping would essentially have to move to the next, you know, get next event call. In order to make that happen, so much plumbing has to change that it, it's probably not feasible to do it all in one big step. And so I think for LibUV2, we'll just make like a big step towards it by removing uh, handle callbacks and only have, have requests. And hopefully after that refactor, we can, we can get closer to a port or a pool-based right. API. My plan is as soon as we have the request-only interface, I'm just going to write a shim on top of LibUV where it internally has its own queue and its own C callbacks that LibUV calls into. And then, and then my Lua code is going to FFI into this shim. It probably won't be the fastest thing in the world, but it will at least prove the idea and see if it's useful. Yeah, I think that should be feasible because when we started this discussion on the lab issue, basically as far as I'm willing to accept at the moment, <laughs> so I'm not opposing the idea, but I think it's too far ahead to, to think it all the way through. But as far as we can get to that is that LiveUV will give you the next event, which is in a form of a request, but because a request is an opaque object, you then sort of call a function on it, which would be like process it. And process it will call the callback that was associated with this thing. But if you wrap the callback in your own FFI, whatever, extract all you need, I think that's very close to what you desire. And after we have this, we probably will have a clearer picture of how we can sort of easily achieve users running, extracting all the data from the requests and basically not needing the callback at all. Like from the top of my head, the problem will be that is very ABI sensitive. You need to access many fields on depending what structure. And also there is the cleanup that Bert mentioned, but well, it's code after all, we can probably find some way. Well, the, uh, about the cleanup, I recently realized an issue with my Lua bindings where when there's an exception in Lua, it does a long jump, which means oh. when libuv makes a callback into my code and then I call into the Lua engine, libuv never gets that cleanup anyway. Mm -hmm. I already don't have that, so that's not a big deal for me. It breaks anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mentioned cleanup more in the in the libuv cleanup sense. If if we usually the callback is the last thing to run, usually right. Um, but if there's anything after the callback, it's not going to happen yeah. if Lua throws an exception. Ever. Yeah, that's that's a bit of a problem. At least in Python, in PyUV, basically, when you call into Python, then you always get, like, you either get null or a Python object, which means if there was an exception, but you still get the control back, so I can clean up after. But if Lua works different, then, yeah, you're, you might but, but be in some trouble. Tim, I'm actually quite surprised that it works at all, if, because... Um, I know quite a couple places where LibUV would totally break down if you if you were to set jump over some of its internal bookkeeping. Yeah, send me links to those and we'll see what kind of crashes I can do in Lovit. Because I, mean, I haven't seen any issues with it. <laughs> I just wanted to get a feel for how near is this 2.0 work or is it is it simply we're in the LEP stage now and it's just discussion? Well, we started the discussion and I did start the implementation of UV read. The problem is that there's a lot of tedious work. So it's not only that you modify, uh, for example, the patch for Unix, at least, to remove UV read start and turn it into a request is not very big, but there are hundreds of tests that rely on it. So you need to go and fix each and every one of them and make sure they continue to work. <laughs> so for instance, I think that's one of the the, of the big parts of all the steps that are required to reach this pool base, whatever. So it's hopefully slow and steady. There is no timeline whatsoever. It's based on time availability and mental state <laughs> to work on it. Um, well, I guess that's the risk with pulling off, you know, trying to pull off too much in, in one block that uh, you may end up never getting any of it done because it's just too oh. much. Well, I think we, if you look at the lab, it's actually divided into many steps. So the good thing is that some of them are parallelizable, some of them are not. But in a nutshell, it's not like one big patch. So for example, before we do pool-based event loop, we will be able to have UV read and UV receive for UDP and remove the timers and create them into a request. And you turn UV accept also into a request and 
after everything is a request, then we can do the pool-based thing. But each of these individual steps is still compatible with the current model. So uh, that would be like somewhere... Just be one fell swoop, yeah. Yeah, so, so Rod, what you're saying is uh, it will take a long time. And, and that's probably true. Um, like slow and steady is indeed a good way to describe it because there's not so much movement, although it's definitely the project is definitely not at a standstill. But what we're discussing here is LibUV2 might as well be LibUV20 more likely. And in between, hopefully, we can make small steps where we don't break too much backwards compatibility and we definitely improve LibUV in every step along the way. I, I don't think that we will make one, you know, we cannot build this this castle in the sky that will never work. Yeah, you don't want you don't want uh, libv2 to be node 0.12 and take two years to get there. Exactly. I mean, that sounds very exciting. So, but let's move on to things that are a bit more, I guess, interesting to the general audience of NodeUp, which is some notable projects using libv. But before we do that, I'm going to get Tim to talk about our next sponsor, which is CodeShip. Absolutely. So CodeShip is a free hosted continuous delivery service focused on simplicity and usability. Set up continuous integration in a few easy steps and automatically deploy when all your tests have passed. CodeShip has great support for lots of languages and test frameworks. It integrates with GitHub and Bitbucket and lets you deploy to cloud services like Heroku, AWS, Modulus, and Nujitsu. CodeShip makes continuous delivery so simple, setup only takes a minute. You can sign up now to get 100 builds per month and five private projects for free. This should allow startups, freelancers, and small teams to easily get started with continuous delivery. For anyone that needs more builds and projects, you can use the discount code NOTEUP to get 20% off of any plan for three months when signing up for a paid subscription. Head over to codeship.com slash NOTEUP to get started, and be sure to follow them on Twitter at CodeShip. Great. Thanks for that, Tim. So notable projects using LibUV. So how about you start us off here because you've, you've, you've done the Python bindings for, for LibUV. Tell us about PyUV. PyUV is actually how I got started with LibUV. I wanted to learn to improve my C, <laughs> learn Python's internals. So I wrote PyUV in C, which is about 9,000 lines, which is horrible. I uh, regret it a lot these days, but at the same time, <laughs> I learned a lot in the process. It's a very thin object-oriented. As Bert said, LibUV is kind of object-oriented. So PyUV is sort of, well, giving you Python objects, where instead of calling UV TCP bind, you call bind on a TCP object. Very, very low level. And my main purpose in doing this was, in Python, there are a bunch of frameworks for doing I.O. in different ways, callbacks, promises, green threads, what have you. So what I started kind of playing around with was replacing these frameworks core with a PyUV based one. And it actually worked. And suddenly you get the high performance on Windows, which was sort of one thing I wanted to achieve. Not because I'm a Windows guy, but because that was an interesting differentiating factor. A lot of these frameworks could only do select on Windows. But suddenly, if you replace the guts with PyUV, boom, it can do much better. So that's how PyUV started. And the last thing, sort of, Python launched this event loop thing in the standard library called AsyncIO. And I wrote the first gut replacement because this thing was made modular, which is called AOUV. And well, it basically gives you the same API as the standard event loop, plus it has some extras because it's PyUV. So it has been an interesting journey so far. Trevor, how about you go next? Because I know you're working on something that, that's LibUV uh, related. Do you want to tell us about your little project? Yeah, the project directly related to LibUV is called LibNub, which is a minor project to another one I'm working on. But basically, it's an attempt to allow using a single event loop with many threads. So you can make calls to like UV write from a thread that is not the thread running the event loop, and everything won't blow up on you. Right now, I think it uses some very implicit things, nothing actually fully supported by LibUV, but because of the way the internals work, it's worked out for me so well. It's, I'm also loosely basing some of it on libdispatch again. I think they have a really good model on how to queue up many requests to be handled by a single event loop thread. And hopefully in the future, 
people will be able to use LibV in a much more uh, threaded environment. Cool. Now, Tim, you've got a long list of LibV projects. Do you want to tell us about some some notable projects that you've worked on that, that uh, interest you particularly? Sure. I think I'm addicted to LibUV because I did a count and I've written bindings for five or six different VMs. It's, it can't be healthy. The, the most popular one by far is my Lua bindings, which originally was the Lovett project. I gave a talk at NodeConf a few years ago. Lovett is basically Node with V8 replaced with LuaJIT. The, the languages are extremely similar. Anything you can do in JavaScript, you can do in Lua and almost vice versa. And so when you create a server and love it, it's HTTP.createServer, and then it's the same parameters. And so I made that a few years ago. It's, it's used in production at Rackspace for their monitoring agent, which runs inside the customer's VM. And the reason they use that is because they have a lot of Node people on the monitoring team, but Node is too heavyweight. A V8 process starts at about 10 megabytes and goes up from there, whereas a Lua process is 20 times less RAM. And for various operations, LuaJIT is actually faster than V8. They're both really good JITs. So Lovett's been fairly popular in places where people want Node, but they want something with lower overhead. And currently, my full-time job is actually working on Lovett 2.0, which is way more modular. I have bindings for LibUV 1.x and all sorts of fun stuff there to keep me busy all day. Another side project I'm working on, you may have heard of the, the duct tape engine. This is a JavaScript, ECMA, ECMAScript 5, I think, mostly implementation. And it's implemented a lot like a Lua VM as an interpreter. It's an extremely low overhead JavaScript implementation, like even, even lower overhead than LuaJIT. They've been running this on almost embedded hardware, tiny, tiny devices. And so I wrote LibUV bindings to that, of course. And I'm making progress there. The goal there is to have a swappable backend for Node if you wanted to run Node on something that was lower overhead and you didn't want to learn Lua. It's not going to be anywhere near as fast as LuaJIT because it is an interpreter, but it will be JavaScript. And I've been having fun there. The, the duct tape API, the CBinding API, is based on the Lua API. So I basically took my, my love bindings and string replaced Lua with duct, and it's almost the same bindings. It's pretty amazing. An older one I made a while back before V8 had generators is called LoveMonkey. And you'll notice I have love in all these names. LibUV is a great acronym. When, when I'm writing my code and I send a pull request, I added some handle wrappers for UV handles. And so this was the love handle wrapper, or the love this or the love that. So LoveMonkey is SpiderMonkey with LibUV. Because SpiderMonkey for years has had generators and array comprehension and multiple return values, and all these features that Node developers loved, would love to have. Unfortunately, I got stuck because the wiki, the documentation, was never accurate, and the engine was constantly changing APIs because the main customer for SpiderMonkey is Firefox. But every time anyone asks Brendan Eich about, so what about Node on SpiderMonkey, he just points to, to LoveMonkey, which makes me cringe because I don't work on it anymore. But that's where that is. Nowadays, V8 has generators and most of these ES6 features, and so there's less of an issue there. But it would still be neat to have more engines than just one running Node. And I think maybe one day we'll even see Microsoft's VM in open source, so you know, maybe interesting to be able to have bindings to that too. So maybe Node itself has to head towards a place where it's VM agnostic. That would be really cool. It'd be cool if you could swap out the JavaScript engines and have it mostly work the same. Now, there's some other other notable projects out there. I, know, I think I think Ru the Rust language, I think the compiler itself used LibUV at one stage and maybe even compiled in LibUV bindings to, to binaries. Is that, does anyone know anything about that? I know they used it for a lot of stuff early on. I don't know if it's still used anymore. As far as I'm aware, they stopped using it. I don't know exactly why. Of course, that's like sad news for LibUV. It's because I actually, when I worked on Mozilla, and then afterwards, I still went into the office to hack there just because I know a bunch of people. Rust actually doesn't have any asynchronous I.O., at least at the time I talked to them, which was a few months ago. They're only using LibUV for their green threads, but then once they moved away from their green thread implementation, they didn't have any use for LibUV because it was all basically pushed out to the system to be handled and the standard libraries. Makes sense. I know Servo as well, their new browser was bootstrapping with, amongst other things, LibUV. I suspect it's probably not anymore if Rust itself has re replaced it. I'm not sure about that. 
I think there's also worth mentioning is Julia. Uh, Julia is a is a relatively new programming language, uh, mostly used by the scientific community. I believe is there to replace MATLAB or R, possibly. And and they've been using LibUV for a long time. Although I believe they have forked it a little bit. So there were particular things that in the past LibUV wasn't so good at, and they added that later on. But as far as I'm aware, they're still super happy with it. So. That's also good. I, I did hear that there was some desire for them to move back into not forking it and, and adding too much of their own stuff, but perhaps that's a work in progress. Yeah, is there, are there any other notable projects that anyone wants to mention that are interesting for, for our listeners? Um, not notable, but there's, there's others. There's a lot of native add-ons for Node that uh, people will be using already. That, um, well, maybe one there is worth mentioning, I guess. When Microsoft open-sourced this HTTP server, Kestrel, it uses LibUV. So that's kind of interesting. It seems like LibUV is a good way, is a quick way to bootstrap some of this asynchronous I.O. And, and we've seen that across few, a few projects. And whether or not they stick with LibUV is another matter, but it, it's, a, it's a quick way to get something spun up. Um, I, w- I wonder cross platform and also does I think IO. I wonder how many people just use LibUV directly in their C and C projects. I know I saw. Oh, yeah, I know like Calebite uses, she wrote Haywire, which is on top of LibUV, which is a C HTTP server. And the thing is freakishly fast. Right. And that, <clears> that AB benchmark system that just blows the socks off Apache Bench. Uh, or not AB, w- uh, WRK. W- no, WRK. WRK yeah. But th- doesn't that one use Redis's? Event loop, it used to do that, unless they changed it. Maybe it doesn't use libv anymore, libv anymore. I'm not sure, but I know it did. Um, okay. I remember it did use Redis as a small event loop thingy. Maybe they switched to libv later on, I don't know, or before, no idea. I saw node, uh, what they call it? It was, just, it was just a C++ header, and that was it. They just added a bunch of sugar, and you could basically write node APIs in C++. And that was an interesting project. Hmm. Like node.native is what they called that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I saw a few of those sort of. I think we have some also maybe in the LiveUV wiki, there are some links as well to some to some related projects. Funny enough, Tim, now that you talked about your Lua bindings, I think last time I counted, there are eight Lua bindings for LiveUV. It's because Lua is so easy <laughs> to bind to. It's ridiculous. I don't know. There's some love to it. <laughs> Lots of love. <laughs> <laughs> there's, uh, there's, there's also, if, if people are interested in delving more into LibUV, you could just cruise around the, the native add-on ecosystem in Node and find lots of places where LibUV is used directly to do some, some interesting things. So, for example, actually one, that, one interesting example that, that, that a lot of people are using is, is actually the 0MQ binding for Node, which actually does, uses the UV polling interface to do some querying of, the, of whether sockets have something to read or not. Also, the node serial port, as was mentioned earlier, does some uh, relatively low-level things with um, LibUV. So it, it doesn't take long for you to cruise around that, that ecosystem. You, know, you get past the, some of the node stuff, and you'll quickly find yourself in, in LibUV land. Yeah, it's actually really easy. I was surprised first time I wrote my multi-threaded node module of how easy it was to create it like once I had some boilerplate code I was able to spin up more threads pass work to it have work done pass data back it was really easy to use I was I was surprised and pleased and I, I really like this idea of, of being able to spin up thread pools on your own personally I, I find that easy that that really that would be really nice for the level DB bindings in node we could spin up our own thread pool to do querying so we don't just use the file system thread pool so I'm looking forward to that that future work that'd be great so um, unless there's anything else that anyone wants to raise, we might wrap up the show with that. We'll get some things in the show notes with links to some of these projects that we've talked about. Let's move on to, on to plugs. So this is a chance for everyone to plug something that they, they just want to tell everyone about. It doesn't have to be tech-related. So how about we start off with Tim? Got some things to plug? So recently I've been, maybe last year or so, I've been working more in C and I've been obsessed with writing as low level as possible. And I thought writing your own operating system would be cool. And I found this really awesome wiki at wiki.osdev.org. And it's just this giant list of tutorials that teach you from beginning to end how to build your own operating system. And, I mean, yesterday I built my own GCC cross-compiler and made a 5-kilobyte operating system that boots on a, on a Kimu or an ISO. 
and that's really fun. I mean, I don't think I'll ever make a real operating system, but it sure is it sure is entertaining and it helps relax some of the stress from my day job. And another thing I've been working on a lot is trying to get kids into programming, and I've been playing a lot with microcontrollers and robots. And the the Spark course, Spark.io, are really, really easy to get into and really to get started. You just open up a browser, pair it with your device, you write code in the browser, it compiles on a remote server, it flashes over the internet, and everything works fabulous as long as you have internet and their servers are up. Otherwise, it's not the best experience, but for beginners, you, you can't beat that. You don't have to install Arduino or anything. You just go to a web page and type code and hit compile. Great. Trevor, do you want to plug something? Sure, I'll plug a recent addition to both Node.js and Node.js, which is my async wrap bindings. For anybody who uses Node.js or Node.js, who's been looking for some kind of asynchronous tracking, I wrote a blog post on how to use this new API. My blog is blog.trevnorris.com. I just like people to use it and try things out, submit issues to Node or IOJS. I don't care which one. I'll see them either way. And that way we can improve it and help it move on past the few tiny bindings it is so that people will be able to find a place to or have their ways of getting all the information they want out of Node Core or cool. um, the app. <laughs> but do you want to plug something? Sure. I remember being on, on NodeApp once before. I think it must have been early 2013 because uh, what I plugged at the time was a loopback, which is a very cool framework that, that we make here at Strongloop. The show hosts weren't so happy with that, so I'm, I'm not going to do that this time. Instead, I, I just want to pl- plug an idea. I really dislike Jenkins. Actually, Rothvac, I see you don't have a plug. You might back me up here. I really dislike Jenkins. It never works, and it has a terrible integration with Git. And so I've been basically for the past couple of years waiting for someone to build a good replacement for Jenkins in Node. So something, something that works on any possible operating system. It can test any kind of project, but it just works nicely. But I've not so far been able to find, uh, find this project, and it doesn't seem that anybody has started it. And I, unfortunately, have no time to do it. So if there are any listeners who have like some time on their hands and they want to make something that's hugely impactful and you know great and will make the world basically a better place, then do, go do this. That's my plug for today. As it so happens, I, I actually started work on such a thing because when we were doing the, the build stuff for IOJS, or it was Node Forward at the time, and we were making the decision about what CI framework to use. I, I think all of us just came to the decision that, that they're all terrible. The whole ecosystem is terrible and we can do better. So I actually I have code on my computer that was a start at that thing. But if anyone is keen on this sort of thing, then you should head to the IOJS on GitHub, IOJS slash build and pipe up there. Perhaps you've got some time to contribute because we'd love to build a, a Jenkins replacement for IOJS and make it work across anything, especially Node. So, Saul, do you want to plug something? I want to plug a couple of things. I discovered this interesting C and C++ dependency manager called B-Code. So, basically, it's sort of this, this way by which you can quickly build your application using libraries that have been put into this cloud by people. So with a few commands, you can have a C application that uses LiveUV and the HTTP parser and what have you real quick because they already bundled those. And they gave me an awesome t-shirt that I love those guys. And another thing I've looked at lately is this language called NIM, previously called Nimrod. It has some interesting features and it syntax wise looks pretty similar to Python, which is something I like. So I'll be checking that out in the near future, I hope. Okay, that's that's all the plugs from you guys, I think. So my plug is I just wanted to plug iojs.org. You should go there and think about contributing. And also NodeSource released a new website, so nodesource.com, our amazing front-end people produce this awesome website so go and have a look at that that's all my plugs for this week so thanks everyone for for joining us upcoming events on the the node and javascript calendar we have NodeConf christchurch one shot that's coming up march the 28th in christchurch of course i'll be there tim oxley will be there i'm really looking forward to that because christchurch is one of is one of my favorite cities in the world so that's march 28th 
JSConfUY, so that's Uruguay, Montevideo, April the 24th and 25th, JSConf.UY. So I will probably be there as well, talking about IOJS and the future of Node as well. EmpireJS in New York City, April the 26th and 27th. So head over to 2015.empirejs.org. CampJS is on May the 22nd to 25th in Melbourne. Both Tim and I will be there and a host of other interesting people. Head along to campjs.com. JSConf US is in May the 27th and 29th at Amelia Island again, I believe. 2015.jsconf.us. NodeConf is on again in June the 8th and 9th. Now it's going to be, I believe it's going to be a dual hosted thing. It's going to be talks at the Fox Theatre in Oakland as well as I believe it's still going to be accommodation and meals and everything out at the Wolf Creek Ranch, I believe. Head over to noteconf.com to look at that. So that's all from us today. Follow NodeUp on Twitter and feel free to contact NodeUp at gmail.com if you'd like more information about how to sponsor the show. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for our excellent guests for joining us and I, I hope the show was enjoyable and informative. See you later.